Mo, come here, buddy. You're going to be in the movies. And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. One of the things that's always fascinated me is how dogs got domesticated. There are all sorts of theories, easier access to food, safety, but what research has shown is that the secret sauce of domestication is curiosity. More specifically, the idea of being interested in something, someone that's different. No aversion, no fear, no aggression. Interest. It's something we humans seem to have forgotten today, a time when othering is so common. Today's world is rife with this kind of tribalism. So when I meet someone like Al Mancini, someone who has spent his entire life proactively setting himself apart while simultaneously leaning in and carving a place in the world that's deeply connected, I get curious. You'll never miss him in a room. His trademark mohawk is so unmistakable. Just a silhouette of him, you know it's him. He's worked in old school media, covered music for ABC Radio, and most recently he was at the Las Vegas Review Journal on the food and beverage beat. He's someone who's spent his entire life not just marching to the beat of his own drummer, but creating entirely new instruments along the way. He's utterly unvarnished with his opinions, something I appreciate, and he balances that with a distinct sense of responsibility, something that he credits, at least in part, to one of the dogs from his life. I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. One of the reasons why I was, I think some people are are interested, like, so like, why are you interested in talking to me? So I, you're, you, you represent to me, Al, um, a, I'm not going to say that it's a dying breed because I do believe that there are people out there who are in the world of um, information gathering and storytelling who are interested in um not telling the story that they have prefabricated to tell, but this this relating the story that's actually there. Um, you know, showing up to, you know, and we've we've talked about this in the past, this idea of, you know, when you go to report a story, you don't show up with your lead written because you don't have the facts yet. You know, you need to get that information and then it may be the story you think and it may not be. You may you may be surprised. Yeah, and that's a harder and harder thing to do in this world where you have to sell the story before you research the story, right? And you even even if you're a full-time journalist. Um, well, anyway, that's I don't know if we're started yet. So I don't want to yeah, start saying Yeah, so we, we are start. we are re- we are recording. I'm very excited. So okay. Al Mancini, who I I know from your time, you know, with the Review Journal specifically. Um, we've had a chance to get to know each other a little bit. You are um a man of story. You are a man who uh, knows his way around food and beverage for sure. Um, you're a dog guy, you know. You're, an, <laughs> you're <laughs> and um, you know what I'd what I'd like to do is is first start by asking the question that I ask everybody, which is the most impactful memory, or perhaps the first memory that you have of 
a pet or an animal in your life that really landed for you? Oh, wow. Well, my first my first dog, Brandy, was a collie who was probably maybe just six months older than I was, right? So I came into this world kind of riding on her back, right? And I, I could still picture the um, the photos that my parents had of me like kind of sitting on this collie's back as an infant. Um, probably wasn't good for her when I think of it in retrospect, but, you know, this was the 60s, so I guess, you know, whatever, things went. We um, also didn't wear seatbelts in the backseat of the car in, at that time, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So the things that, yeah, and there was no seatbelt on that dog. I'm surprised it didn't fall off. But so my dog, Brandy, uh, was the dog that I grew up with. And she, you know, she was an amazing dog. Uh, but then the first dog that I had for myself was a dog that I had to join the 4-H club in New Jersey to raise these seeing eye dog kind of deals. And you would have them for a year and then you give them back to the seeing eye. And um, Phoenix had bad hips. So we ended up keeping him. He wasn't able to be a seeing eye dog. So that was the first dog that I raised on my own. He was a yellow lab and, um, you know, slept by my bed and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, those were my first pets. And then my wife and I um, got our first dog together. We basically we got married in June, moved into Manhattan probably in August of that year and got the dog within like two weeks of moving into the city. So that was a a Harlem pound puppy. Um, Her name was Jezebel and she was awesome. She was a dog that, again, things you're not supposed to do now, but, you know, in the old days, dog that could walk off leash in Brooklyn and Manhattan and, you know, always be by our side. And we, we didn't have to worry about her darting off into traffic. I can't imagine ever having a dog like that in this day and age, uh, even in in Las Vegas. But yeah, Jezebel was great. And my wife and I have had at least one dog ever since. So um, when you think about that first collie and you think about that connection that you had growing up, what's a lesson that you learned from that dog? Uh, I mean, I think... You know, with Brandy, I, I was a child, right? I was an infant when she came. So she was just part of the family. But I mean, you know, having having Phoenix probably as maybe a 12-year-old when I got him and knowing that we had to raise him and that he had certain responsibilities and supposedly was going to go off and lead blind people around, um, you know, that, that's certainly a great lesson in just responsibility and the fact, you know, what you do echoes out into the universe. And, you know, even though he did not eventually go out to serve the public, you know, that was definitely in my mind, you know, that you have to do what's right here because you don't want this dog walking somebody into traffic, I guess. Right. So, um, but well, it depends on who the dog's walking, I suppose, but that is true. <laughs> but you know, there, there was certainly, I mean, that fact that that dog was going to have a job or that I believe that dog was going to have a job going forward made it so much more than just the dog being there for me, but it was definitely a, a universal, like I was doing something and it, it, it gave me, I guess, a, a firm belief in that everything we do impacts the world around us. I love that. Lessons, lessons learned from dogs. Yeah. You know, so um, you were in small town, New Jersey. You know, you really were always yearning, excited to, to go out and do. Um, you went to law school. You didn't just go to law school. You graduate law school. You also take and pass the bar exam. But then you don't practice law. Tell me, tell me about that. I mean, my entire life, I think up until, well, maybe still going on, but it's always a quest to just find where I fit in, in, in this weird world around me where I, I felt like a bit of an outsider, a bit of an odd, oddball. I didn't want to look like everybody else. I didn't want to play on the football team with everybody else. I didn't want to do the things that other people wanted to do. I wanted, I didn't want to also, I didn't want to just, um, fit in 
but I also didn't want to just blend in. You know, I mean, remember in high school, um, reading a statistic that said, you know, most people walk into a room, if there's 10 people in the room, one of them will remember you or one of them is really going to like you. Uh, one of them is really going to hate you. And eight of them aren't going to remember you were in the room or something like that. And I said, well, fuck that. Um, you know, if I walk into a room, I want all 10 of them to remember me. And I don't care if all 10 of them hate me as long as they know that I was there. And so I always just had this very outgoing flamboyant um it you know individualistic viewpoint that's why i was attracted to music attracted to rock and roll attracted to people who kind of cur you know to, who were artists who did their own thing and figured out a way to be themselves and not have to blend into what society was telling them they had to be and i knew i couldn't do that in southern new jersey um so you know by the time i was in high school not only was i going into philadelphia every weekend to hang out down on south street and just walk with the freaks but i mean a couple times a year i I was going up to New York City, which was, you know, a two hour bus ride and just walking around that community and taking in this atmosphere of people who I knew were from everywhere on earth, but they went there because they could be themselves. Um, and again, I, I didn't have anything that would have prevented me from blending in other than my desire not to blend in. Right. And so for me, it was always about getting out of that and being around artists, being around creative people, being around interesting people, being around people who are just being who they were, not who somebody else told them to be. Brene Brown, who's one of my spirit animals, talked about talks about this. Um, many psychologists, psychiatrists talk about this. Evolutionary anthropologists talk about this. This our our genetic predisposition to belong to nuclear units, to belong to groups, um, whether it's your family of choice, whether it's, you know, your family of origin, whether it's your community, what what have you, that we're, we're hardwired at a genetic level to belong, and yet society tells us to fit in, and therein lies the conflict, right? That um, belonging is about being precisely who you are and having a place regardless, and fitting in is that adapting you know, be, you know, one of us, one of us sort of things. And, um, you know, I'm sitting here looking at you this morning and there, you know, you are someone who, um, I met you before I met you when I moved to Las Vegas. I knew who you are, were before <laughs> I knew you, um, because your presentation in the world was always very unique. You are not sporting your most unique attribute, one of your most unique attributes this morning. Yeah, well, I knew uh, I'd be wearing headphones today, so I didn't spike the mohawk, and I didn't <laughs> think we were going to be on video for this, so I'm hoping this is an audio-only podcast. But um, It is an audio-only yeah. podcast. I don't want to take away from yours, but it's... um. Well, you know, being an individual or, or standing out or being a freak or whatever way you want to refer to it, or, you know, it's it's always served me in different ways in my life. Um, you know, first of all, I always had really long hair, the mohawk came about because my hairline started receding on the sides and I said well screw this if I'm going to go bald I'm going to go bald on my own terms and then the short it used to be a long mohawk and the short spiky mohawk came in because I had been bleach or I had been dyeing my hair black for like 12 years in a row and you can't do any other colors and I wanted to get creative so I finally just said to my hair guy like just bleach out the roots and as soon as it gets to two inches just cut it off and from this point forward you could do whatever you want to my hair as long as I have hair um, so that's you know that those things kind of came of necessity but you know I discovered it's kind it's a cheat in two ways looking unusual is a way to cheat in life in two different ways number one when you look like somebody that people don't expect to be smart then 
you can just be kind of smart and they think you're a genius, right? Like when, when you go to law school with hair down to your ass, uh, seven holes in one ear, your nose pierced, things like this in 1992 when I started law school, that was unheard of, right? So the assumption is that I'm going to be one of the dumbest people in the class or, you know, one of the people who won't do anything. And then because I'm pretty outgoing and I always had my hand up and I always spoke and I had some relatively smart things to say, then people immediately go from, oh, he's the dumbest guy into the class to, oh, this guy is a genius, right? Because they, you've set their expectations so low by looking different and looking weird. And I'm not saying that's why I did it, but it was certainly a benefit. And law school is probably the first time in my life I was ever popular um, among my classmates because I was sort of like a mascot. I was the weird kid, right? Um, but I was tending bar at CBGB's, um, you know, at night where I was the most straight laced guy there. And then I was at law school, I was the freakiest guy they'd ever met, right? So that, that was a weird yin and yang. Um, but you know, as I started going to journalism and I was a music journalist at first and I was working red carpets and I was interviewing bands. And one thing that I realized was that, you know, these guys, these, these musicians see people, um, you know, uh, they, they meet a hundred journalists every year and I may only see, you know, Anthony Kiedis from the red hot chili peppers on the red carpet, you know, once a year or twice a year, but he knows that weird guy with the Mohawk from ABC news. And when everybody's screaming out his name, he would come over and he would talk to me. So it was sort of a calling card that if I was cool with them and we had a good relationship the first time that I met them, that we would have, you know, that they would come over and talk to me and I'd be able to chat with them again. So I, I've, since then, it's just sort of been a, a nice calling card a nice, um, a nice way for people to remember me, I suppose. And that helps in this business. Now, one of the things uh, that comes as I you know, look at your at your history, look at you know how you have moved your way through your world. The the words that come to mind for me are uh, resilience and adaptability. And most people think, well, ad- adapting to situ- situation means blending into the situation, kind of being that chameleon that blends in. Yet. You have managed to adapt without giving a whit of room, without giving an inch of space, uh, being completely unapologetically exactly precisely you, and yet adapting at the same time to, to many different, to different cities, to different industries, all of that. What would you credit that to? You know, I, I try to take jobs where I'm able to learn something from the people around me, where, where I go in not knowing something or where they can bring something to me and I can bring something to them. And, you know, uh, so I, I, I try to go into every job that I take as humble as possible and saying, OK, how can I learn to do this your way, but also still do things that I believe in? Um, and, you know, the larger the organization you get into, the harder that is, but the more you can learn from it. Um, you know, early on, I mean, me going to law school, that's where I learned to write. I was a horrible writer before law school. I was great at oral arguments, um, but my writing skills were for shit, right? And I had a you know college radio background and I, I could speak well. I could speak really well off the cuff. And I decided I wanted to get onto the Moot Court Honor Society, which was oral arguments. But part of that was your legal writing grade. And it turned out that I was the lowest legal writing grade. I got a C plus my, my first year of law school and they'd never accepted anyone with that low of a grade. But the way that I did that was that I 
had the highest oral argument skill that they'd ever seen in moot court. And um, so they averaged out and I, sne- I snuck on and I really immersed myself in that. And by immersing myself in that, I became a halfway decent writer. And I took more writing classes than anything else while I was in law school because that's where I wasn't good. Right? And that's what I needed to learn. And then ABC News Radio hired me to just be their rock and roll guy. And yeah, I took that because I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I was going to take a little time off after law school. And I was just going to, you know, what, get high with rock stars, party with rock stars on the tour bus, right? That was going to be great. You know, I, I took it to have fun with rock stars and I took it to bring that kind of street cred to their rock radio stations at ABC. But you can't be surrounded by tremendous journalists like the ones that work for ABC News and not want to be a better journalist, right? Right. So I didn't go to ABC wanting to be a journalist. I wanted to goof off and hang out with rock stars, but I was surrounded by people who were tremendous journalists. And I knew that if I wanted to get on the air there and do things that were a little more, I couldn't do them at the same level as if I was just at a rock and roll magazine or at a rock and roll publication. I had to do them at an ABC News level. And I tried really, really hard. And, um, you know, my first big stories fell into my lap. Um, You know, tragedies happened at concerts that I was at, whether it be lightning striking at the Tibetan Freedom Concert or um, the Woodstock 99 riots. But I knew that I had to give them a quality of work that would be worthy of ABC News. So I really worked very hard to try to maybe come up to that level. And that's what I've always tried to do is take find people who would hire me that I could take I could give them a world that they weren't familiar with and then they could teach me a skill set that I didn't already have and we could do a little give and take and that was all the way up to working for the review journal for four and a half years of learning how they did things and I learned a lot there I learned that I didn't want to work at a general interest newspaper and I learned that um, I'd rather be a little more niche but by working for a general interest newspaper and by trying to give them work that was worthy of the review journal and the other great journalists that I had over there I learned so much so for me I've always just tried to take you know to workplaces where they can teach me something and that I can give them something that they wouldn't get from anybody else so when I say leadership, what what does that word mean to you? Leadership. Um, that That's a strange one because I've never tried until recently. I've never even cons- tried to consider myself to be a leader. I've always tried to consider myself to be, you know, the outcast who's trying to learn a few new, new skills. But it, it has become important to me as I get older and I'm in my fifties now to be able to sort of take what I've developed and instead of being, instead of being the young guy banging on the the wall and saying, let me in let this strange, you know, this strange young kid in and, and give me a hand up, you know, I'm now realizing that I'd like to work with people who have less experience than me. Um, learn what they know about the next generation because I can't be plugged into that next generation. I don't understand what's going on in the music world any more than any other 50 something does. Um, and, but, but give them the, the benefit of the things I've already learned. So that's why, you know, everything that I do moving forward since I've left the review journal has been really aimed at, you know, how can we do more collaboration? How can we bring things together? How can we try to find new ways to do stuff instead of just staying in the old machine because the old machine is not equipped for the modern world. Um, and, and when you say the old machine, do you mean, um, the mechanism of journalism itself, the mechanism of storytelling and information gathering? Do you mean, or do you mean 
the bigger societal machine. Well, for now, I think I mean the mechanism of storytelling and the mechanism of journalism. And I think, you know, the thing that really that I've come to realize over the past few years is that um, we have a lot of old media expertise out there, a lot of institutional knowledge. People like myself who are trapped in an old media world who know a lot, who could really pass that on, but they don't know how to get the message out to the next generation. And they're still trapped in you know, a traditional newspaper setting, which is not hitting the next generation of people. Um, and then we have a lot of technology geniuses who are out there who know how to get messages out to people, but they don't have anything to say once they get people's attention. And as a result, we have a lot of crowdsourced information with no expertise whatsoever. And there's this tragedy that we have going on, which is that the people who know how to spread the message have the least interesting things to say. And the people who have the most interesting things to say because they've been doing it for the longest time. And I mean, I'm not saying that new newcomers don't have interesting things to say, but they don't have the institutional knowledge. They, they don't have the sources. They don't have that. Um, so, yeah, I think like... It would. It's kind of nice once in a while to take a step back and say to yourself, "What are we trying to accomplish, and what's the best way to do it?" Um, you know, I started a podcast recently, and people said to me, "Well, okay, well, podcasts are done this way," and I'm like, "Wait, no, don't tell me how podcasts are done." Any more than I, I don't want to do a traditional podcast any more than I want to do a traditional newspaper story or that I want to do a traditional blog. Every story needs to be told in a different way. And I'd like to be able to have all of these things at my disposal. So an Al Mancini podcast is not going to sound like everybody else's podcast. It's going to sound like an old media guy doing a podcast, but taking advantage of of this new media and this new art form and this new way to get things out there to people. So I, for me, leadership right now means taking a step back, trying to figure out exactly what you want to accomplish, and then figuring out the best path to accomplish that. And unfortunately, I think the technology people know how to create brilliant paths. Like they, they, they've spent their lives putting new paths out there, but they have not in the process of putting those new paths out there, figured out what their what stories they're going to tell along the way or what their what their goal is other than making a buttload of money to pay back their venture capitalists. Right. Right. Well, I mean, and the other issue, um, you know, it used to be you know, back when I was a kid. <laughs> Um, you know, you were asked, you know, what is it you want to be when you grow up? And there was the traditional, you know, firefighter, police officer, astronaut, not president, corporate CEO, whatever. There was some sort of thing that someone wanted to be. And um, there's a very disturbing trend of, you know, I want to be famous. It's like, well, the question then is, okay, so for for what? What are you going to accomplish other than um, vacuous content that that gets a lot of eyes on it. People say, oh, the world moves more quickly. But but does it? The human brain doesn't process any more quickly necessarily than it did before. Story is a story is a story. The arc of a story is still the arc of a story, which is no different than it was 20,000 years ago when we're scratching things on a cave wall. So from where you sit as a storyteller, because I see you, Al, I see you as a storyteller, someone who, whether you're talking about food, whether you're talking about the, the chef who makes the food, or you're talking about a dining experience, whatever it is, you're taking us through that arc. 
you're taking us through that experience. So what are what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you touched on so many things right there. Um, as far as I want to be famous, but I don't know what I want to be famous for. You know, I mean, I feel like that started somewhere between the real world and the Kardashians. Like people no longer had to be famous for something that they did. They could just be famous. And um, so that's led to, you know, a whole nightmare scenario of what people get famous for. You know, you're not famous for being a good athlete or writing a good song. You're just famous for being on TikTok or something. I, I don't I don't understand that. But I, I do appreciate so much that you said you see me as a storyteller, because for me, you know, you can gather all the basic facts and I could do all the interviews uh, that I know. And I know that so-and-so opened this restaurant and it's unlike anything else. Um, so I'm going to want to tell a story about this new restaurant and I'll interview three, four people. And sometimes I'll have to sit for a week and try to figure out where the real story is. The story that has an arc, the story that has characters, the story that has either a hero or a villain or a new interesting bit of information that people hadn't already seen before. Sometimes maybe it's just the fact that this chef grows their own vegetables in their backyard, that that fact alone can tell you so much about everything else about the restaurant that that's where you want to anchor your story. Um, sometimes it's the thing that that chef has overcome in the past that, that that's going to be the aspect. And sometimes you have to sit with the story for, you have to sit with facts for a really long time and sit with personalities for a really long time to find that story that's going to carry people along and make them read the full thing and not just read the headline. Unfortunately, we now live in the world where most publishers don't care if you deliver a good story. They care how many clicks you get because that's the way they sell it. And you're more about giving people the keywords that they were Googling than you are about telling them a story that's going to keep their attention. And we've all been in that situation. And at a certain point as a journalist or a writer or a storyteller, you have to ask yourself, why? Why am I knocking myself out? And what does it matter if I got 50,000 hits, if I didn't tell anybody anything new? Um, you know, so for me, th that's really where, as I left the review journal, which is a great publication, I have mad respect for them, but I had to start asking myself, what is it that I want to do? Like, what are the kinds of stories? And what I've come to the conclusion, I've written about music and I've written about food most of my career. These are two things that I, I always say that they're the backdrops against which the stories that make up our lives play out. And that those are how the memories of our lives are formed. All of our memories have a song in the background or a taste in the background. And so you eat that veal parmesan that isn't the best you've ever had, but it reminds you of your grandmother's. And then you remember that, that funeral meal or that wedding meal or that whatever where you were around people you loved. You have a meal that remembers you, brings you back to a first date. So to me, that's what food writing is. It's about, it's about putting people into the rooms where they can make those memories. Uh, and music journalism, much in the same way. I hear a song and it can bring me back in time. And literally, I, do, I, I once heard a Marianne Faithful song on an episode of American Horror Story, and I was transformed back to a moment 25 years earlier when I'd seen Marianne Faithful jump up on a stage and do that same song. And I'd never thought of it ever, but then I heard it, right? So I, as a food writer right now, I want to put people in the rooms where they can make those memories, where they can have an enjoyable meal and that they can make those memories for their future. And that's what I'm trying to do with the next year or two of my life is figure out a way. And I realize that if, if 50,000 people read a review journal story of mine, the chances are that two or three will go into that restaurant. 
But yet sometimes I put a video up on social media and it only gets 200 views on my personal social media page. And I get six messages that week saying, oh my God, I saw that video of yours and I went in there and I loved the place, right? Now, six people... You know, I used to work for ABC News Radio. Three million people heard me when I went on the air. Three million seems like a big deal. 200 people on social media, that's, that's bullshit, right? Like, who cares? But yet six of them went in and had a meal. Well, that's a big deal to me, you know? Um, so It's a big deal to the restaurant, too. Yeah. And so I would – that, that's, that's what my goal is, at least for this point of my life, is to create ways – to put the right people into restaurants they're going to enjoy. Not tell them that what they like sucks and they should go here instead. Not tell them that this is the best place in the world that you'll never be able to get a reservation in, but it's awesome and how much cooler am I than you because I'm eating here. So I'm going to ask you a very unfair question. All right. (laughs) What's your favorite food? Do you have a, like, what is your go-to, the meal, forget about... Um, what the cardiologist would say, forget about what the doctor would say. Like if there's a meal that you could eat all the time, what would it be? Yeah. And you know, a lot of people ask me questions like this and I do have a couple pre-prepared statements, I guess, but at the end of the day, I don't want a pre-prepared statement. The the truth is at this point, I, what's the thing you don't tell anybody else? I go where I'm invited. That's what I want to know. I go where I'm invited and that's what I eat and I eat what they serve me. My wife and I always (laughs) joke like, what are these menu things that people hand out and look and make decisions? I just, I look at the chef and say, bring me what you want me to eat and what you want me to talk about. Um, but look, Especially when I lived in New York, not as much here for a lot of reasons, um, but sushi. I would eat sushi and sashimi, you know, a couple times a week if I didn't have. You mean you don't want to eat sushi? You don't want to eat raw fish in the middle of the desert? There is good sushi in this town, but there's not a lot of mid-priced good sushi in this town, right? There's a lot of super expensive good sushi. Um, and then there's a lot of, you know, mid to high priced good sushi. So I do like sushi in Las Vegas. It's just, it's not on every corner like it was in Brooklyn or Manhattan, you know, of solid, reasonably priced sushi. Um, so that's probably my favorite cuisine, just basic sashimi, nothing too fancy, just respect for the ingredients. Um, you know, and then people always ask, "What's your favorite restaurant?" Which is a silly question, but I'll tell. But I do tell everybody that if money was no object, I'd probably eat at L'Italier at least once a month because that is just to me the perfect blend of the pinnacle of fine dining without any of the snobbery bullshit that goes along with fine dining. Um, you know, you could go to Ro- Robichon next door for the special occasions, but if you walk into the Talier, you can have jeans and a t-shirt on and strike up a conversation with the stranger next to you and you could eat by yourself and not feel weird about it and, um, and still be getting Robichon level tweezer food, which is really fun for me. I want to talk a little bit about uh, ego arrogance and humility. So uh, when we think about the celebrity chef and you think about there are lots of names we know and some of them are on TV and, you know, they're big splashy restaurants and lots of hoop-de-doo. And there is a certain level of um, to be a true executive chef you know, kind of running a top-of-the-line restaurant, whether it's top-of-the-line top, top of the line meaning, you know, super fancy high-end dining or whether it's a um, a neighborhood restaurant that just puts out superb food and good service. I mean, running a ship like that does take a certain kind of personality, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. 
But there's a lot of there's a lot of personality in the game. When you think about the chefs who really fire on all the cylinders for you, they're not just masterful with cuisine. They haven't just created a space where the experience of dining is great food, great service, great atmosphere, and all of that, you know, whatever the theme of that may be. Um, but that when you you get a chance to know the person, that the whole thing really comes together. Who's top of mind for you? I mean, there are a couple chefs that just run brilliant organizations, and I respect them because they create, they foster a creative environment where they encourage their the people who are actually running the restaurants on day to day to become fantastic in their own right, and they're willing to share the spotlight with them. Um, for that reason, Michael Mina is one of the absolute best in the world, um, and Michael is never afraid to let his chefs go on a TV show and talk about what they created in his restaurant. He, he's not afraid of sharing the spotlight. Wolfgang Puck also runs a tremendous organization um, where he, he lets people, you know, talent come up from the bottom and he's happy to share the spotlight. Not as much as Michael. I mean, let's face it, Wolf is more of a household name himself, but um, he's still very brilliant at, at fostering a creative environment where he lets other people shine. Uh, so I respect those chefs for that reason. Um, also, Jose Andreas, very similar kind of chef. He is much more of a, more than anybody else, I think Jose Andreas feels that he, okay, all the people I've mentioned, but even more so Jose Andreas, strikes me as somebody who's always out there to learn, who always wants to find out what somebody else can teach him. Um, and in recent years, Jose has been more about his humanitarian work, which means he's delegated a lot more of his day-to-day -day running of his restaurants to other people. Uh, but he's still passionate about learning things. And, you know, I, I, I've only known Jose Andreas over a 10 year period, 12 year period, but in that time I've seen him almost discover things that he didn't know when I first know him. I mean, bizarre meat is an amazing testament to when a guy who is known for this molecular gastronomy or Spanish avant-garde, he hates the term molecular gastronomy, but no, known for that crazy scientific food. And then he went back and opened bizarre meat and he just discovered the beauty of knowing where the animal comes from, knowing the, muscle structure, knowing that, you know, all of these things about the parts of the animal and knowing how fire works, right? And that seems like such a ridiculously simple thing, but understanding the proper way to raise an animal, the proper way to butcher an animal, and then the proper way to age it after it's been killed, and then what kind of fire to put it on, those seem like such incredibly simple things. And yet when you go into a restaurant like Bizarre Meat, you can tell that he spent a lot of time studying those things, which are so far from what he had done at El Bulli. For a chef to be willing to always looking to learn new things and to travel the world and to go into countries they've never been in and pick up new skills and, and bring experts in to teach them. And then also for a chef to let the people below them be willing to, um, to shine and not be afraid mm -hmm. that they're going to outshine the name on the marquee. Um, that yeah, well, there's a level of um, there's a level of humility to that for sure, and also a sense which goes right back to what that dog taught you all those years ago. This idea of, you know, we move through the world um, to be of service. That when you come from a place, uh, when you come from a servant's heart, if you will, that you know, the, you know, so 
you know, the names that you've mentioned are big marquee names that, you know, you see on merchandising and restaurants and packaged food and freezers and, you know, luxury grocery stores and all of that. Um, you know, I think of some of the names who are household names for us here in the city, you know, in the city of Las Vegas, which is certainly a dining town. Um, you know, people like James Trees, you know, people like Brian Howard, people like Justin Kingsley Hall, people like Josh Smith, you know, these individuals who, um, in, and all of them, all of those restaurants, the restaurants they have are very, very different, serving very, very different clientele, very different atmospheres. And, and yet there's a similarity and if, to all of them in terms of how they serve. If you look at the restaurants that they have come through and the chefs that they've worked under, a lot of the names you mentioned have come through at least one of those organizations I mentioned. And some of them have been through several of those organizations that I've mentioned. And they do bring that desire to serve the community. But Las Vegas... I'm told, and I, I, I can't speak to this because I'm not in the kitchen, but I, I've been told and I see it. And the reason that I love writing about food is our chef community is so much more of a community and so much more of a lending helping hands to your competitors than so many others. And I think that came from the fact that a lot of these guys in Las Vegas came out of a casino, right? Where if you work in one casino restaurant, you're not trying to stab the other casino restaurant in the back. You're trying to help them. If you need a if they need a bottle of wine and you only have one, you know, Romani Conti left, and they come over and ask if they could borrow it, you don't hoard it. You 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 loan it to them, right? And that's just what the casinos demand. And because of the fact that 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 collaborative nature, you know, that the guy at Robichon is going to help the guy at the other MGM restaurant. I think those chefs have all in this town come to help each other. They loan each other their ovens. They, they, they'll bake bread for another chef in their place. Um, James Trees talks about what John Arena did for him, you know, helping bake his bread over there. And, and we could just tell hundreds of those stories. And that's why I really fell in love with the food community in this town. And it extends even further. I mean, you know, I don't know, 10-ish years ago when food writer Max Jacobson was hit by a car and 20 of the best chefs in the world came to Las Vegas, including Bobby Flay, who flew in to make one course of a dinner to raise $300,000 for a food critic in one night. And Rick Moonen put that together with Barry Daycake. In, in less than a month, they had this benefit done with some of the best chefs on the planet. And I, I remember turning around and just saying, this is, this is how much these people love each other. I want to be part of this community. I, I want this to be my home. I want this to be where I live. And um, that's I had actually thought that a little while before that. But that's when my wife said to me, Las Vegas is our home. Because this is where people care about each other. And we saw it again on October 1st, where the number of people who I would see out, I'd see these chefs out at hospitals bringing food in, and I'd ask them to give me a quote that I could do in my story. They're like, I don't want any credit for this. I don't want any attention. Las Vegas as a city is predicated so heavily on being of service. Um, but it, there's an interesting thing about that. It's it's easy to be of service and keep people at a distance. They don't even know they're at a distance because you're being so uh, affable to them and so polite, but there's something about, um, the warm embrace that is a city like Las Vegas, which isn't what people actually think of. Um, so when you launch this podcast, which of course I love that it's food and loathing <laughs> in Las Vegas, I got the, of course the reference was 
impeccably, impeccably done. Um, but what are you what are you hoping to accomplish? You talked a little bit about the next couple of years and and the kind of storytelling that you want to do. Let's talk big picture for a second. Big picture. You know, what what is Al Al Mancini's impact? What is it? What is it you're looking to try? I to mean, do? what I really want to do is put more people into restaurants that they're going to enjoy and find the best way to do that. Um, I'm working on a technology project right now. One thing I love about being a journalist is I don't like to necessarily always be the expert. I don't always want to tell people what Al Mancini likes. I like having a Rolodex of amazing people that I can go to and they know a lot more than me. And I've got a tremendous Rolodex of people. So what I want to do is create a new kind of restaurant guide um, that has a much more technological basis to it, where instead of just being me and two other experts that maybe I put together a group of, say, 50 experts, people who I know their taste is impeccable, put together almost a Yelp-like kind of guide um, and figure out a way that it'd be a curated list, right? And that we can really do this. Is there a way to reinvent this wheel? Is there a way that I can try to create a fantastic product that will give people the information they need, put them in the right restaurants, and then make make enough living that I can pay the tech people that have to build it for me and um, that I can eat and do all that kind of stuff. That's my project that I'm working on right now. So I started a podcast so that I could do the kind of conversations that we're having right now, where people can say things freely and not worry that it's going to be in a pull quote. For me, an in-depth, honest discussion means not being afraid to say something that, that will could be taken out of context. And a podcast gives you that opportunity to have these open discussions, what you like, what you don't like, because nobody's going to get to that quote unless they listen to the whole 60 minutes and they're going to have to hear everything else that you said. So you don't have to worry about this. I mean, I, I think cancel culture is a bullshit word, but whatever. You don't have to worry about this cancer culture. It's also actually two words. Yeah, that's true. Excuse me. Ooh, nice catch there. Thank you. Calling <laughs> me. Um, but I think it's a bull bullshit. I don't premise, know but when holding... I don't know when holding people accountable became cancel culture. Yeah. And I also don't know. Like it's, and it's, I had a long conversation yesterday with a dear friend of mine who is, um, he lies centrist right. I lie centrist left, though much more centrist than, than perhaps I was a year ago even. Um, but we had a conversation because he was talking about, being woke. And I said, so at what point does the concept of someone awakening and realizing new information that opens their mind and gives them a, 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 a more broad view of a new reality or perhaps adjusting an old way of thinking? So, you know, I, I recall very, very clearly one of the very first conversations I had with someone not long after I more publicly came out. Um, would have been 2008, 2009. I had been out for a little while, but I was, you know, it was kind of like my friends knew, but mm -hmm. it wasn't like public conversation. And after Prop 8 passed, I be, became an activist and I start telling my story. And I will never forget, I was in a, a some sort of business context and someone said, said something that they didn't intend it as, in, as offensive. They didn't intend it to be offensive. Um, and I I didn't call them out on it. I didn't berate them for it. I just gently, you know, when there was a moment to speak with them directly, just said, hey, I want to just do a minute. I just want to talk to you about something that you said before that kind of landed with me. Um, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you made this you made this comment about a gay person. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'm I'm actually a lesbian. 
And, you know, oh, well, I didn't. I was like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not mad. I just wanted to have a conversation with you because I like you and I know you. And the statement that you made doesn't make logical sense to me based on the person that I know. Can you walk me through the process that you went through to get to that understanding? I'm just curious. Right. I'm really curious to know because it's incongruous with the you that I know. Mm-hmm. And we had this unbelievably meaningful conversation that they walked away from having an entirely new view and watching and minding their presence a little bit differently. Right. And, and like, to me, that's a, an awakening. But it's been so, that word woke has been so co-opted. So, I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to kind of get around to is um, holding people accountable and, and at the same time being respectful of meeting people where they are. Right. And, and that that tension. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about food. Right. We're not talking about political discourse. We're not talking about the cure for cancer. We're not talking about climate change. And one of the things you said it already, you've said it, the things that are common to all cultures. It doesn't matter where you're from, what language you speak, how you were raised, how much money you make, what education you have. There is food. There is music. It is a con- these are the common threads because everybody got to eat yep. and music is the literal heartbeat of culture. It is our history. It is how stories are told. It is how protests are grown. It is how mourning happens. It is how joy and celebration. Like, I am someone who hears the national anthem and, like, I get legitimately choked up at the national anthem. Right. When I look around and I see 18,000, 60,000 people looking at that flag and I realize, wow, that's... That's like a real, that's a really big deal. Yeah. So where do you fit into that? What what are you hoping to maybe accomplish besides, you know, changing the world through food and music? I mean, again, I I hope that I put people in rooms where they can have intelligent and and in-depth conversations and sit down with people and, and have that great setting where they, where they can talk. Um, I do think it's important, you know, this, this is interesting because we're all constantly, life is a lesson in progress, right? And being, I'm, I'm 53 years old. I was raised at an age where the liberals thought they had kind of done away with prejudice and racism and sexism. And you don't write a story about female chefs because that's condescending to call a top female chef a top female chef. Why don't I call her just a top chef? And it took me until within the past 10 years when I started saying to women who were tremendously successful in the kitchen, do you want me to frame this as a story about a woman chef or do you want me just to you know, ignore that? And they said, no, it's very important to me that, I, that we make it a point that women can succeed in this business because we haven't achieved equality yet and we need the representation. And that was a mind-blowing revelation to me because I thought I was being a good liberal by never ever mentioning anybody's gender or their sexuality or their race. I thought by pretending I was colorblind, I was doing a good thing. And then people said to me, no, you're actually not helping. And so, you know, what I learned there was instead of deciding for myself what's the best way to cover a story, maybe ask the people who I'm covering how they would like to be covered and and how they would like their own stories told. Now, of course, you don't let everybody write their own story, but but it is important to know how they feel they fit into the world if you're going to try to to portray them in the world. So for me, 
that that is very important to to just be open to what the kitchen issues are, what the restaurant issues are that people think need to be discussed, what the people who live in that world think need to be discussed, uh, instead of going in just with my own set of preconceived notions as to what you know what I should be doing. 